Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our auger and excavator level patrons. A very special thank you to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. We are friends forever. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On Friday, April 21st, 1961, a delegation of Jamaicans were shown into the lavishly decorated throne room of Haile Selassie's Imperial Palace. Located in the capital city of Addis Ababa, the massive compound includes several residences, halls, chapels, and working buildings. Just recently, in 2018, the Ethiopian government opened the Imperial Palace to tourists, who can now walk through the halls once occupied by Ethiopia's emperors. According to Douglas Mack, his Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, king of kings and elect of God, greeted the delegation warmly. Mack, known in his community as Brother Dougie, was one of three Rastafarians on the trip. Though his personal account of the narrative lacks much emotional description, one can only imagine the whirlwind of feeling that swept through these three men. In the Rastafarian religion, Haile Selassie, Emperor of Ethiopia, is the Messiah. And these three young men, devout believers in the socio-religious philosophies and mythologies of the Rasta faith, were meeting, in person, their Messiah. Mack's writing is devoid of emotion, at least in part, because he wrote and published his account as a corrective on what other members of the delegation presented as the quote-unquote official narrative of the journey. Mack asserts that in their meeting with Selassie, the emperor told the delegation that, quote, he knew the black people of the West, particularly Jamaica, were blood brothers to the Ethiopians. He also knew that slaves were sent to Jamaica from Ethiopia. The emperor said that Ethiopia was large enough to accommodate all the people of African descent living in the Caribbean with the desire to return. He told us that Ethiopia would always be open to those who wanted to return home. Mack describes how the other delegates moved on in the tour of the palace after this exchange, but that the three Rasta brothers stayed behind because they had gifts to present to Haile Selassie. They presented him with crafts handmade by the Jamaican Rasta brothers, items that signified the ties between the descendants of enslaved Africans and the kingdom of Ethiopia, a hand-carved wooden map of Africa with a portrait of Haile Selassie, photos of the Rastafari brethren, and a woven scarf in red, gold, and green, the colors of the Ethiopian flag. Writing in this passage for the future generations of young Rastafari men who might read his account, 
Mac likens this visit to the, quote, three wise men, the Magi, paying homage and bearing gifts to the king of kings, end quote. For Mac and many Rastafari who heard his story or read his book, this was a significant moment in their religious history. But two years later, when Mac returned to Ethiopia, Jamaica was under new leadership, the Rastafari communities were under attack, and none of the promises that seemed ripe in that moment of 1961 had come to fruition. But to truly grasp the significance of the 1961 and 1963 journeys and the tumultuous Jamaican history in between, we've got to dig a little deeper. So we got to dig a little deeper. You know from Princess and the Frog? No. Oh. So today we're talking about the Caribbean, Ethiopia, and a radical religious movement that sought to build a bridge between them. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. This episode is part of our Radical Religion series. There are lots of religions that, at their founding, were meant to shake up the establishment, which is what we mean by radical religion, right? So we could probably do about uh, like 30 or 50 of these series and Absolutely. literally never run out of stories to tell. Right. I wanted to write this episode because I started to dig into Rastafari history in spring 2019 when I was teaching a course on decolonization. I built the course planning to talk about Bob Marley and the Rastafari roots of his music because I, like many, I imagine knew little about the Rastafari besides their Jamaican origins, the mellow beats and provocative lyrics of Rasta reggae, and that dreadlocks and marijuana were important to the community, though I'd never bothered to learn why as a young person. As I was designing the syllabus for this course, I stuck Trenchtown and Bob Marley as a topic for a day in April and made sure to assign Marissa's excellent episode on the history of slave rebellions in the Caribbean at the start of the semester. When I had to start preparing for the actual day, we'd be discussing Marley and the Rastafari. However, I encountered a history of what could only be called a radical revolution-starting religious community. I wanted to expand my investigation of the Rastafari, so here we are. There are quite a few good studies of the Rastafari, and the community has been studied from very early on. Several of the scholars Ave used to write this episode refer to a 1960s socio-anthropological study conducted by the University of the West Indies on the community, which then made formal recommendations to the Jamaican government for how to address the concerns of the Rastafari community. Much of the cultural studies uh, since have built on that work including Sheila Kitzinger's follow-up study of the community just six years later. There's also a quite robust bibliography of peer-reviewed academic work and non-academic work on the Rastafari, included in Peter Clark's Short and Accessible History, though it was published in 1994, so it ends there. And Averill included a few more recent monographs and articles in her research, which are listed in the show bibliography. Most of those studies are from people outside the community, though many Black and Africana studies professors who write on the Rastafari are members of the community themselves. There's also a pretty expansive tradition of Rastafari writing histories, particularly those people who are considered leaders in the community. So Douglas Mack, as I said, known as Brother Dougie um, in his community, wrote a short history of the Rastafari, which he published in 1999. And which is as much a personal history as an official history from within the community. 
He was on the two delegations from Jamaica to Africa in the 1960s, representing the Rastafari. And I've used his writing on that here, both as a secondary source, which I cross-referenced with a range of other secondary sources, and as a primary source. He is considered a griot, a role in many West African communities responsible for the preservation of history and traditions. Griot, like our Western European bards, makes poetry, music, and storytelling to teach communities about their past and to advise leaders. His commitment of these stories um, in writing, many of which he was a part of, is an extension of the Rastafari adoption of the griot role in their religious community, which is, you know, so it's a West African social role, societal role, that the Rastafari of Jamaica incorporated into their religious communities. But anyway, um, I wanted to rely largely on texts written by Rastafari, but there are also just some really fascinating studies by scholars like Neil Savashinsky, Sheila Kitzinger, Velma Pollard, and Michael Gomez that I've woven throughout as well. So this is a well-studied topic um, from people inside and outside the community, and I hope at the very least this episode inspires some of y'all to go out and dig a little deeper on your own. The origins of the Rastafari are both very recent and, per their mythologies, ancient. As a cohesive philosophy and set of doctrines, the founders of the Rastafari were early 20th century Jamaicans. Philosophically speaking, it is anti-colonial, pan-African, and patriarchal, with a general Abrahamic worldview. You're probably familiar with symbols that are associated with the Rastafari, dreadlocks and beards, marijuana use, the Rastafari language or dread talk that includes a lexicon of anti-colonial words like Babylon to refer to colonial and neo-colonial society and the police, brethren and sistren, oh, I like the word sistren, which means brothers and sisters, downpressed, meaning oppressed, eni, meaning us or we, innocen, meaning unison, Evinity, which means divinity, and the cadences of the Rastafari language uh, and musical traditions, particularly reggae. But these are the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> the true depth and root of the movement and the religion is beneath the glare of the water. The core texts of the Rastafari philosophy are the Kebra Nagast, which is a 14th century document that traces the lineage of Ethiopian kings from Solomon of Jerusalem to today. The Christian Bible, with heavy focus on the Old Testament, and the writings of 20th century Black separatists and theorists, including Marcus Garvey, Leonard Percival Howell, and Fitz Ballantyne Petersburg. It's hard to get a sense of the Rastafari philosophy without some basic understanding of these texts, so we'll just really briefly sketch those out for you. According to both Rastafarian and more broadly Ethiopian mythology, the king of Ethiopia is descended from the son of King Solomon of Jerusalem and Empress Balkis Makeda, uh, otherwise known as the Queen of Sheba. This encounter is recorded in the Old Testament book of Kings and expanded upon in the Kebra Nagast. According to these texts, Solomon called all princes and neighboring rulers to witness his greatness. Empress Makeda attended and put Solomon's wisdom to the test. She gifted him two bouquets of identical flowers, one real and one artificial, and asked him to discern which was real without touching them. He called for bees from his hive, and they alighted on the real flowers. She was very impressed with his smartness. That night, at a banquet, they made a pact to never take anything from the other without mutual consent. 
Solomon served her spicy food at the banquet and then told his servants not to put any water in her side of the bedchamber that they were to share, sleeping on opposite sides of the room divided by a curtain, and instead to put a full jar of water next to his bed. When she got up in the night searching for water, he caught her taking a drink from his jar and decreed the pact broken. In his account of the story, Douglas Mack says, quote, and the rest is history. Presumably, um, he's leaving out that this meant that Solomon feels no obligation not to maybe forcibly have sex with Makita because when she left Jerusalem, she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Their son, Menelik I, would rule Ethiopia. According to legend, Menelik was raised by his father in Jerusalem, but as soon as he returned to Ethiopia as a man, his mother stepped aside to let him take the throne. According to the Keber Nagast, he returned to Ethiopia with the Ark of the Covenant. Oh. That's where it is now, obviously. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Indiana Jones had it. He was wrong. wrong. He obviously didn't read the Keber Nagast. His descendants established the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, converting the Ethiopians from the worship of the sun, moon, and stars to the one God of Israel, and their emperors resisted the conquering attempts of white Europeans over the centuries. In Rastafari ideology, Ethiopia is the pinnacle of black civilization because they were the one country on the African continent that resisted Caucasian conquerors all the way up through Italy's attempted invasions in the 1880s and again in the 1930s. Both of these stories hint at the rigid patriarchal hierarchy of Rasta ideology. While women were important to the Rastafari communities for many reasons, in mid-20th century Jamaica, they were the primary breadwinners, educated children, and did all the domestic work, but they were most certainly also secondary to the men. When Douglas Mack, a Rasta man, describes the history of the Rastafari community, he talks primarily about the brethren, or the men of the community, and their struggles. The longest discussion of the women, or sistren, of the community are relegated to a three-page subsection of the book, which is not to say that Rasta men don't celebrate and appreciate the women in their lives and communities. Women whom Rasta men take to bed outside of marriage are called queens, presumably in reference to this relationship between Solomon and Makita. According to Mac, quote, Rastafarians believe that women should exude their femininity at all times, which meant never wearing pants or makeup, um, makeup being too Western for these kind of anti-colonial um, folks, or straightening their hair. Mac also argues that the, quote, constant images of the Rasta cistern reinforced the beauty of black women in Jamaican society and presumably wherever Rasta ideology permeated in the United States, Britain and settlements in Ethiopia and beyond. And we I should also maybe pause here to just mention that I have heard from members of the Rastafari community that they don't say a Rastafarianism ever because oh. they don't consider themselves an ism, right? Okay. Isms no, that's are, important. Isms are a Babylonian or whatever. But um, Douglas Mack does refer to, to folks as Rastafarian. So mm. that's as far as I get um, when we use that language in the in the episode. Interesting. And that's really important. I was, I was interested in, because I've always heard it referred to as Rastafarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very interested when you wrote this, you know, going through it and seeing Rastafari, which yes. I've never seen before. Yes. So. Yeah, so that's, I use Rasta, Rastafari, and Rastafarian as interchangeable, but meaning, but avoiding the ism. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there was also a system which enforced gender subjugation 
in Rastafari uh, communities. Mack tells a story in which Leonard Howell, who was considered the first Rasta, was arrested and jailed for a time. And when he returned to his community outside of St. Catherine, Jamaica, one of his queens was pregnant with one of the other brother's babies. She was tried for adultery and stoned out of the community, never to be seen or heard from again. Mm. Mack makes no comment on the unbalanced power structure that made it fine for Howell to have multiple female sexual partners, while a woman who strays from her common-law husband would be subject to exile for having sex with another man while her husband, common-law husband, was in jail. The incorporation of the Keber Nagast and the other texts of the Ethiopian Coptic Church, like the Christian Bible, speaks to the Ethiopianism that is central to Rastafari theology. According to Saeed Adejamobi, quote, Ethiopianism is an Afro-Atlantic literary religious tradition that emerged out of the shared political and religious experiences of Africans from British colonies during the late 18th and early 19th century. Ethiopianism linked Africa historically to the ancient classical era, challenging the then prevailing idea that the continent had no history before the arrival of European colonizers in the mid-19th century. Proponents of Ethiopianism argued that the African nation was one of the oldest continuous civilizations in the world and claimed that some of the first examples of organized religious festivals, solemn assemblies, and other forms of worship evolved in Ethiopia. By the 19th century, when Ethiopia was one of the few nation states under African control, many people of African ancestry embraced it as evidence of the black capacity for self-rule. Marcus Garvey and many of his predecessors saw Ethiopia as a black bulwark in an aggressively white world. The Rastafari took that ideology a step further, incorporating the king of Ethiopia into the heart of their theology. Rastafari believed that Haile Selassie I is the Messiah, and that his ascension to the throne of Ethiopia represented the crowning of the king of kings. They derive their name from one of Haile Selassie's titles, Ras Tafari. Ras is Amharic and means head, usually a title given to a prince or chief. Tafari means one who is respected or feared. Garvey, a charismatic, brilliant leader, was never himself Rastafarian, though the first Rastafari communities were founded in his lifetime. Nevertheless, the first Rastafari identified Garvey, who had many followers who ascribed to Garveyism as a prophet of their religion. And so selected Garvey texts are considered gospel. Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica in 1887. His is a story that is probably somewhat familiar to people who studied early 20th century American history because he lived in New York City for a while and was a prominent labor organizer. But before he started rattling cages in the United States, he founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association in 1912, or the UNIA. His goal was to unite the African diaspora, to, quote, establish a country and absolute government of their own, end quote. He passionately wrote that, quote, our union must know no climb, boundary, or nationality, end quote. A strong statement in favor of an international black nationalist movement. He and his contemporaries believed that Africa needed the hearts, minds, and hands of the African diaspora, and he was a major proponent of the Back to Africa movement. His writings on Pan-Africanism inspired many, from the Nation of Islam to, of course, the Rastafari movement. 
Garvey founded a newspaper, Negro World, in 1918, a shipping company, Black Star Line, in 1919, the Negroes Factories Association, also in 1919, and grew the membership of the United Negro Improvement Association exponentially. By 1920, UNIA claimed 4 million members worldwide and held an international convention in New York City. According to Mack, Garvey arranged with the Liberian government the granting of a half million acres of land for African-American repatriation. Garvey brought a crew of immigrants across the Atlantic in his Black Star Fleet, but was reportedly beaten to the coast of Liberia by the American Secretary of State. When the Black Star Line made it to the West African coast, the Liberians refused to allow the immigrants to disembark, and ultimately they turned around, demoralized, and went back to the U.S. Many of his contemporaries disapproved of Garvey's strong Black separatist rhetoric. He advocated that the African diaspora return to Africa, and until such a huge migration was possible that the diaspora seek to establish stronger trade production and cooperation efforts, but limit their markets to other, quote, Africans. This was the purpose of the newspaper, the shipping company, and the NFA, to build up commerce and and interaction between the diaspora and Africa. W.E.B. Du Bois, an officer of the NAACP who sought integration and amplification of people of color within the existing social, political, and economic structures, called Garvey, quote, the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America, end quote. Garvey's ideas synced up quite nicely, actually, with the white supremacists like the KKK, who saw the United States as a white nation and approved of Garvey's plans to move all people of African descent back to Africa. The newly established Federal Bureau of Investigation also considered Garvey a dangerous individual. According to historian Theodore Cornweibel, the UNIA was infiltrated by a series of black informants inserted into the organization by the FBI. Man, the FBI has a proud tradition of that. Mm-hmm. Um The UNIA was never financially solid, particularly as Garvey poured too much money into the Black Star Line, which the FBI was also actively sabotaging. Cornweibel posits that the Bureau's primary motivation in harassing and attacking Garvey's businesses and organizations was to, quote, silence Garvey's assertions of racial pride and Black self-determination. In the 1920s United States, neither could be comfortably tolerated by men like Herbert Hoover. Perhaps Garvey's association with the KKK and virulent anti-Semitism were also factors in the FBI's displeasure with him. Shortly after the failed Liberia immigration endeavor, Garvey was arrested and sentenced to five years imprisonment for mail fraud, a trumped up charge that came from the FBI, you know, shock of shocks. And he served four of those years in prison in Georgia before being released and deported. Garvey's ideas, speeches, and organizations were undoubtedly threatening to white supremacy. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. I'd say, I mean, just because he's talking about um, repatriation to um, to back to Africa, he's talking about a kind of black pride, pride, right? Which white supremacists can't abide, even if they're going to do that in another country. Even if they tell you that they're fine with that. Right. Today, white supremacists, one of their big talking points is like... Oh, no, no, you're fine. Just live in your own space. Like, Mm -hmm. America is for white people and, like, black people should live there and Jews should live there. And, like, 
they'll never actually be <laughs> happy with that. Like, they actively hate and want to destroy people of color. Right. right. Okay, so Garvey's ideas, speeches, and organizations were threatening to the broader white supremacy in the United States. Absolutely. Um, which was true in the U.S., but also back in his home of Jamaica. Back in Kingston, he... After he was deported, he served briefly in politics, but then moved to London in 1935 and died there in 1940. But while he was wrapped up in his own UNIA activities and his brief foray into local politics and continuous lobbying of the colonial government to establish a repatriation program for Afro-Caribbeans, the Rastafari movement was growing in and around the impoverished regions of Jamaica. The first Rastafarian, Leonard Percival Howell, began preaching the theology of the movement in 1933. He drew on the writings of Garvey, who was allegedly to have predicted the crowning of an African king who would be the king of kings. Three years before Howell began preaching, Haile Selassie had been crowned emperor in Ethiopia. One of Howell's first moves was to declare the divinity of Haile Selassie, calling him, quote, the Messiah returned to earth. According to anthropologist Sheila Kitzinger, Howell sold 5,000 postcards of the emperor Haile Selassie at a shilling each and told people they were passports to Ethiopia. A charismatic leader, Howell quickly assembled a large following in St. Catherine's Parish, Jamaica, and spread the gospel of the Ras Tafari. Haile Selassie's apparently successful rebuffing of the attempted Italian takeover in 1935 seemed a confirmation of Rastafari theology. While Douglas Mack's account of Haile Selassie is quite reverent, he describes the emperor as a man of slight stature, but who was warm and good. His observations obviously came from a place of seeing this guy as his messiah. In the U.S., we probably have a pretty glowing picture of Selassie as well, because he's also been memorialized in Bob Marley's music. Um, Johannes Woldemariam, an Ethiopian scholar uh, who works at at the London School of Economics, implores that the romantic depictions of Selassie stopped. While Selassie granted Rastafarians with the means to immigrate, or without the means to actually do the immigration, uh, 500 acres of land in the Rift Valley, uh, which was a settlement known as Shashamane, which we'll discuss a bit later in the episode, the peak Rasta population there was never higher than 1,000 residents, and they never assimilated into the quote-unquote promised land of Ethiopia. Selassie reportedly spent $35 million on his 80th birthday celebration while the people of his country starved in the Wallow Famine. How the hell do you spend $35 million on a birthday party? I assume you have the entire circus from 1900 Barnum, (laughs) P.T. Barnum. That's a lot of... That's First, a lot of money. Spent the money to resurrect P.T. Barnum. Yeah. And then to bring his entire circus over. <laughs> uh, Selassie traveled the world and was much like the Shah of Iran or Mobutu of Zaire, an autocrat who helped the West maintain a balance of power in a world at ideological odds with the founding of the Soviet Union. And like any other religious group that relies on the writings of predecessors, the Rasta leaders were selective in what doctrines and sayings to pay attention to. Though Garvey is credited with predicting Selassie's assumption, he never actually named the king of Ethiopia as the Messiah. In fact, in 1937, Garvey criticized the Ethiopian emperor, who maintained slavery in his country until 1942. 
Garvey said, quote, it is preferable for the Abyssinian Negroes and the Negroes of the world to work for the restoration and freedom of the country without the assistance of Selassie, because at best, he is but a slave master. The Negroes of the Western world, whose forefathers suffered for 300 years under the terrors of slavery, ought to be able to appreciate what freedom means. Surely they cannot feel justified in supporting any system that would hold their brothers in slavery in another country whilst they are enjoying the benefits of freedom elsewhere. The Africans who are free can also appreciate the position of slaves in Abyssinia, you know, which is also, which is Ethiopia. What right has the emperor to keep slaves when all the democratic sections of the world are free, when men had the right to live, to develop, to expand, to enjoy all the benefits of human liberty? Still, Ethiopianism and the kingship of Haile Selassie provided a foundation on which a leader like Howell could build a movement. Garvey, too, tapped into pre-Selassie Ethiopia, which resisted European imperialism when no other African state seemed able. But anyway, back to Leonard Howell, who was certain of Selassie's divinity. From very early on, Howell was deemed a threat by the colonial government in Jamaica. In December 1934, really just a few months after he proclaimed the divinity of Selassie, he was arrested for sedition. Howell's theory, which he preached from the early days to willing listeners and then collected into his 1935 pamphlet, The Promised Key, asserted the divinity of Selassie, that black people were the chosen people, the right of the descendants of enslaved Africans to, quote, return to their homeland, which was Ethiopia, and the rejection of Western aesthetics and authority, among other key tenets of the Rastafari faith. The Rastafari reject Babylon, a biblically inspired denomination for the colonial world and its agents, including the police. In the Old Testament story of Babylon, the king of Babylon enslaved the Hebrews, holding them in captivity for a half century and took away their language. By the rivers of Babylon. Is that a Bob Marley song? And there we wept. It's like it's an old, like, um, spiritual, I think. Um, But yeah. uh, Bob Marley does a version of it. Mm. But why I sing it is because it was like the centerpiece song of my acapella group. Of course. And we, um, like that we sang that, that was like the one, the first song you learned. And then that was, we sang that at every single event that we ever did. And Weirdos. no, it was actually really wonderful. Cause so we started powerful. with that, like that, the mm-hmm. hymn part of Babylon yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. then turned it into David, the David Gray version of Babylon. Oh, you know that version? No. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. Oh, Babylon. You know that one. Yeah. yeah okay. With the... Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry for singing when I have a cold. She's terrible. I am terrible. I so, love that song. the analogy of the Hebrew <laughs> being enslaved, captured, and their language being taken from them, all the culture, right. et cetera, that has clear ties to the experiences of enslaved men and women from the African continent who right. were captured, taken to a foreign land, and then they and their offspring were held in captivity for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the people who enslaved them tried to wash away their culture and their religion and all these other things. Exactly. So, particularly in Jamaica, which was primarily a sugar plantation colony throughout English colonization until the mid-19th century, the Babylonian story would have resonated most strongly because sugar slavery was so harsh. Rather than improve quality of life, plantation owners in the Caribbean and Brazil tended to just buy new slaves when the old ones died after only 9 to 15 years from the day they got off the boat till the day they 
expired because of the harsh conditions. Right. I think Marissa talked about this in her episode on slavery in the Caribbean, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's a completely different um, slave culture than the United States just because of that, right? Yes. Because it was so difficult to maintain any kind of culture when you die within 10 mm-hmm. years of arriving, right? Yeah. In 1940, Howell founded a commune in Sligoville in the St. Catherine Parish, which he named Pinnacle for its geographical location at the highest point in the town. This was the first Rastafari community in Jamaica, and it was self-sustaining, rejecting the authority of the colonial world. The members' residents grew yams, bananas, sweet potato, tampi, cocoa, corn, and plantains, raised livestock, made slippers out of old tires, which sound very uncomfortable, and grew marijuana, which they used for religious rites and sold to tourists. Over the course of the 1940s and 50s, Pinnacle and other Rastafari communities founded in its wake were raided by the colonial police and members were arrested. The charges were almost always for growing marijuana uh, and, quote-unquote, inciting violence. In 1941, the police arrested 70 of Howell's followers at Pinnacle, including Howell himself. Pinnacle was permanently shut down in 1954. The movement grew and particularly attracted people who were illiterate and who lived in the slums of Jamaica, whose experience of Babylon was essentially like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Men flocked to the Rastafari Brethren because they had few opportunities and resented the colonial state for its oppression, or in the Rastafarian parlance, the downpression of black people. Once they joined and embraced the look and words of the Rastafari, their employment opportunities were reduced even further. According to Mac, Rastafari who grew out dreadlocks or spoke in workplaces about the divinity of Selassie were promptly fired. It fell then to women to provide income for households and sort of be the intermediaries between the outside world and the commune. Even in the mostly self-sustaining communes like Pinnacle, some level of income was necessary for every household. And the communes, in turn, were targeted by the agents of Babylon, the colonial police, um, for this, that, and, you know, the other thing. Real infractions or invented, the perception of downpression flourished in the Rastafari communities. Police harassment fed into the Rasta claim that the Jamaican government was Sodom and Gomorrah and supported their aim, which was, as one Rasta told Sheila Kitzinger, to go back to Africa, our ancient land, where we know we will live in happiness and plenty. Though slavery was abolished in Jamaica in the 1830s, the resulting economic system left the huge black population under and unemployed. Though there were some notable exceptions, like Marcus Garvey himself, opportunities for the black men of Jamaica were few. The self-sustaining Rastafari communities promised food, shelter, and positive representations of black manhood. In Abe's episode on fatherhood just a few weeks ago, she talked about the ways that enslaved men were barred from jobs and gender roles that were considered typically masculine. In many post-emancipation communities, the long-term effects of those conditions manifest in various ways. Though not necessarily the norm, many post-colonial and post-emancipation nationalist or organized movements like the Rastafari produced patriarchal systems that, like the Rastafari communities, encouraged rigid gender relations and expectations. As one of Kitzinger's interviewees suggested, quote, a woman can just leave the Rasta. They're not Rasta in heart. The man is the head of the church. Women have to obey the principles of the elders of the movement. 
In some communes, there were no women at all. Men took their sons to be raised separately from women in male-only communes, perhaps echoing Solomon's raising of Menelik away from his mother. Barf. Another manifestation of the rigid patriarchy of the Rastafari, which continues to reverberate in Jamaica in strict social policing, is the violent rejection of same-sex desire. Same-sex sex between men is still explicitly outlawed and has been since the British introduced an anti-sodomy law in 1864. Legality, however, is not the only concern that a same-sex desiring man might encounter in Jamaica. Though 2018 saw protests against the anti-homosexuality laws, the taboo is still pervasive throughout Jamaican society, at least in part because of the influence of the Rasta rejection of same-sex desire. From early in Jamaica's colonized history, the enslaved black population had a track record of resistance and revolt. We're not going to spend much time on it here, but you can listen to Marissa's episode on resistance in the Caribbean for a refresher, um, which Ave did assign to her decolonization students last year. And which they love. That's fantastic. It's a fantastic episode. I assign it too sometimes. Marissa talked in that episode about some significant figures like the Ashanti queen Nanny and the founding of the Maroon communities of escaped slaves that carved out space through armed resistance in Jamaica. Before and after the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, the black Jamaicans resisted colonialism. Those traditions certainly influenced the self-perceptions and identities of the Rastafari. Significantly, Douglas Mack includes this longer history of black resistance to British imperialism, but focuses pretty heavily on the role of black men. He mentions Nanny, but only in passing, and only after he listed some of the men who fought for her in the Maroon Wars. Douglas Mack is considered by his community members to be a griot, a historian of the Rasta movement. So it's interesting to see the ways his account of that history is shaped by his role as an insider compared with something like Kitzinger's outsider anthropological perspective. From the founding of the Rasta religion in the 1930s through Douglas Mack's second journey to Ethiopia in 1963, Jamaica changed dramatically. By the 1930s, the major industries of the island, sugar production, banana production, and steelwork, were controlled by big corporations. Pre-existing socioeconomic structures, which privileged lighter-skinned individuals and created a mulatto middle class and left the black Jamaicans largely landless peasant laborers, created stark divisions between the haves and have-nots. As Akia Bernard notes, quote, with no jobs and no land, most of the landless peasant class were forced to squat on government-owned city property called yards and rummage through refuse for sustenance. In some of the Kingston yards in the late 1930s and early 1940s, camps emerged where individuals would buy, sell, and smoke marijuana, end quote. In these same camps, men would gather to discuss politics and religion. Bernard argues that this is the root of the centrality of marijuana or ganja in the Rasta religious rites. All of these things that I didn't understand about Bob Marley's music are just like coming together, coming to light. Yeah, it's amazing. In 1944, Jamaica instituted universal suffrage. Norman Manley and Alexander Bustamante, two mixed race, quote unquote, mixed race, middle class politicians, led the two major political parties on Jamaica's push for autonomy. The People's National Party, which Manley founded in 1938, advocated tirelessly for universal suffrage. 
Bustamante, Manley's cousin, initially belonged to the PNP, but Bustamante aligned his interests most strongly with the workers of Jamaica, who were largely of African and mixed-race descent. He was highly active in anti-colonial activism and was imprisoned on charges of subversive activities in 1940. When he was released in 1943, he founded the Jamaican Labor Party, and his close relationship with the workers of the island catapulted his party to power with the granting of suffrage in 1944. He was the unofficial leader of Jamaica until the position of chief minister was created in 1953. Manley, who pushed for suffrage from the constitutional level, while Bustamante demonstrated in the streets and whose party was a democratic socialist organization, wouldn't earn enough votes in the universal suffrage climate until 1954. Bustamante and Manley became political rivals throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. By the 1960s, each party was unofficially affiliated with a gang of agitators who were not afraid to use violence to advance their political positions. The Rastafari existed largely outside of the violence and political machinations of the two parties, and even though individuals like Bob Marley were more sympathetic to one side or another, usually the People's National Party, whose socialist aims were quite aligned with the practices already implemented in the Rasta communes, they officially took no side. In 1976, a gunman, unofficially connected to the JLP, shot Bob Marley, angry that Marley seemed to sympathize more with the PNP. Marley survived the assassination attempt, but the gunman murdered Marley's wife, who was shot in the head in her car. Days later, the recovering Marley played a show and brought the leaders of the two political parties um, onto stage and made them hold hands in front of thousands of fans. In 1960, Norman Manley was chief minister. That year, sociologists at the University of the West Indies conducted a study of the Rastafarian brethren, and in the report they presented to Manley stated that there were real problems facing the Rastafari that required government attention. Rastafari men were discriminated against in the workplace, that the police harassed them constantly for gathering in the camps, and most important to our story, that the Jamaican government should contact African governments to address the Rastafari brethren's desire to repatriate to Africa. Technically, Manley had no real political power to arrange diplomatic missions with foreign countries, but nevertheless, he did reach out to a number of African governments inquiring about repatriation possibilities. He heard back from five who said that they would welcome a delegation from Jamaica, including Rastafarians. Manley brought together Rastafarians and other back-to-Africa groups to plan the 1961 journey. Neither Manley nor Bustamante were particularly excited about the repatriation goals of the Rastafari. They were, after all, working to improve conditions for all Jamaicans to cast off British imperialism and make life better in Jamaica. Still, Manley agreed to help. The Jamaican government funded the delegation of Jamaicans, which included three Rastafarians, Brother Fillmore Alvaranga, Brother Mortimo Plano, and Brother Douglas Mack. In addition to the three Rasta brothers, there were members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which still existed after Marcus Garvey's death in 1940, mm. the Afro-Caribbean Council, the Afro-West Indian Welfare League, and the Ethiopian World Federation Incorporated, as well as a journalist. They left Kingston on April 4th, 1961, traveled through New York City, then London, before arriving in Khartoum, Sudan on April 14th. Sudan borders Ethiopia, and so Ethiopia was the first stop in the delegation tour. 
In addition to the momentous meeting of the Rasta men and their messiah, all the delegates met with the archbishop and patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Mac and the other Rasta brethren discussed the key biblical verses in Rastafari theology and discussed the divinity of Selassie. They, quote, reminded the archbishops of Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for his is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Though the archbishop recalled Ethiopia's victory in the Italian invasion of 1935, when Selassie told the League of Nations, quote, you have struck the match in Ethiopia, but it shall burn Europe, uh, which was, you know, prescient. Mac didn't overstate the archbishop's interpretation of the Revelations verse, who only said that, quote, the Bible could be interpreted that way as evidence of Selassie's messianess, but clearly uh, the archbishop wasn't convinced. In Ethiopia, the delegation also vis- visited Shoshamane, the community of mostly Rastafarian immigrants who'd taken Haile Selassie up on his offer of repatriation to Ethiopia. According to Julia Bonacci, Selassie established the land grant in 1948 for the members of the Ethiopian World Federation who had defended Ethiopia during the Italian War of 1935-41. The land grant included an invitation to the, quote, black people of the world, end quote, to come settle in Ethiopia and contribute to the country's development. Bonacci notes that a few Caribbean and African-American settlers arrived in the 1950s and 60s, but it was ultimately peopled mostly by Jamaican Rastafarians. As of 2011, there were about 600 men, women, and children of 15 nationalities living in this town. Mac and the other delegates spoke with James and Helen Piper, a couple from Montserrat in the Caribbean who'd migrated first to New York, then joined the Ethiopian World Federation, then moved to Ethiopia in 1948. They and others with them built homes, planted crops like sunflower, corn, and bananas, and raised livestock. I could live on corn and bananas and look at sunflowers. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. The Shashamane community surely resembled, to Mac and the other Rasta brethren, the communes in Jamaica like Pinnacle. And according to Sahid Adajamobi, the Shashamane residents lived quite separately from the Ethiopians, not trying to integrate or assimilate into their Ethiopian homeland. Still, Mac saw in the community at Shashamane a possible future for him and his people. And his report on the remainder of the delegation journey to Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia, and Sierra Leone was similarly optimistic. He reported that the representative of the Nigerian government, who was also inspired by the writings of Marcus Garvey, hoped that talks on resettlement of Afro-Caribbeans would follow closely. Mac reports that the representative, quote, compared the Back to Africa movement with the Jewish restoration of Israel. I'm not sure how to really interpret that statement. Hmm. Like, on the one hand, oops, sorry, Mac obviously found this reassuring because Rastafari see their king as descended from the Hebrew king, Solomon, right? But considering the tensions in the Israel-Palestine region already in 1961, I wonder if he didn't think that comparison was a little troubling. Um, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, that's a really good point. After Nigeria, the delegation went to Ghana, where they met Kwame Nkrumah. 
Nkrumah was a leader of the Pan-African movement in Africa, and Ghana was the first country to get independence from England, which they achieved in 1957. This was surely an exciting moment for the Jamaicans, who were in the middle of negotiations with the British to grant their own island nation independence. Mack refers to Nkrumah as a, quote, wise president who arranged for the delegation to meet with a committee to discuss how many Jamaicans might move to Ghana and what skills they could bring. No promises were made, and Nkrumah pointed out that the Africans of the Caribbean and those of the Gold Coast had been developing on different paths for many years and that it would take more years yet to find common ground. Which is a good point. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. He is wise. Yeah. Was wise. In Liberia, a nation which was a nation founded by a contingent of 88 back to Africa African Americans in 1822, the hope was palpable. In 1955, the Republic of Liberia made a provision to issue free land to immigrants, and immigration laws were favorable to peoples of African descent. The president invited the brothers to tell him of the Rastafari movement, which they did, and Mac reports that he said, quote, Jamaica was overpopulated while Liberia was underpopulated and needed people. Though the president also noted that only immigrants with clean police records would be welcome, this visit, too, was remembered favorably by Douglas Mack. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Their final official stop was Sierra Leone, which was only, you know, which was only about two months before this um, declared independent, was the least productive per Max goals on the trip. The representatives they met with there suggested that Sierra Leone needed to get its own affairs in order before opening borders to immigrants, but that future conversations should be expected. In his account of the trip, this reasonable demurring was surely meant to be eclipsed by the apparent enthusiasm from every other African leader they met with. Everyone lauded Marcus Garvey, the Rasta prophet, and either had provisions ready for incoming immigrants or made promises to that effect. Little of these hopeful and enthusiastic encounters, however, made it into the official report delivered to Norman Manley when the delegation returned to Jamaica. The leader of the delegation was far more reserved, and the three Rastafari brothers were outnumbered in the dictation of what accounts were included in the final report and what weren't. But then in 1962, Jamaica gained its independence from Britain, and Manley had little time to worry about the Rastafari repatriation goals, because his power was unseated by Bustamante's JLP. After all his work trying to improve social conditions for all Jamaicans, including the Rastafari communities, it was Bustamante, not Manley, who was the first prime minister of the independent Jamaican state. When Mac and another brother approached Bustamante about sending a second delegation in 1963, Bustamante was unreceptive. He was dealing with an exploitative economy and and a democracy still in its infancy and the legitimate critiques of the opposition government of Manley's PNP. He was certainly not going to fund an expedition to Africa for Jamaican citizens to seek immigration opportunities in Ethiopia. Like most Jamaican politicians, he had more worldly here-and-now issues to deal with. But Mac, determined, raised funds to launch the second journey on his own. He and one of his Rasta brothers spent two full years in Africa, traveling from nation to nation, seeking places to repatriate their brethren. Kenya reportedly promised land for 10,000 Jamaicans, and still there was Shashamane ready and waiting for them in Ethiopia. 
Starting in 1968, a few hundred Jamaican Rastafarians did indeed immigrate to Ethiopia. None of the other promised lands came to fruition. In many cases, uh, African nations explicitly expressed rejection of Rastafari immigrants. Many struggled to maintain democracies in the face of bold corruption, military insurgency, militant religious organizations, and other challenges. They had little time or effort to devote to repatriating dark-skinned men and women with whom they shared little culturally, historically, linguistically, religiously, politically, or otherwise. Shared ancestors, it seemed, was not enough to build a bridge on. But even when Jamaican Rastafari settlers were not welcome, the philosophies of the Rastafari made it into the homeland. According to Neil Savashinsky, the Rastafari religion traveled on the highly visible and popular music attributed to the socio-religious group, namely reggae. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Slap. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, the underemployed Maori of New Zealand, the Havasupai Indians who lived in a reservation at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, West Indians in Bixton and Ghanaian Ghanaians in Africa all had large groups seized um, by the radical sentiments of the Rastafari. Rastafari ideologies appealed greatly to these historically and ongoingly oppressed groups. According to Savashinsky, quote, like the Pan-Africanists who preceded them and from whom they borrowed so much, Rastas have been instrumental in helping black youth become more aware of their long and venerable history and in teaching them not to be ashamed of their race and cultural heritage. This is something that Douglas Mack says explicitly, that he wrote his history of the movement and of the 1961 and 63 delegations to educate future young Rastas who needed to know their own history in order to resist it. Over the course of the 1970s and 80s, the Rastafarian movement spread among urban-based West African youths. It was carried to them through the reggae music made an international sensation by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Savashinsky notes that nowhere is this clearer than in Ghana, where in the capital city of Accra, you can find cassettes by African, Jamaican, and Anglo-Jamaican reggae artists like Evie Edna Ogoli, Majak Fashak, and Alpha Blondie, who are all West African singer-songwriters, and of course the Jamaican superstars Marley, Peter Tosh, and Jimmy Cliff. But music, marijuana use, and fashions are all merely the visible markers of the presence of Rastafari in West Africa. The messages and belief system, based on that Abrahamic tradition, was easily received in West Africa, already dominated by Protestant and Catholic converts and Muslim influences. Rasta's critique of white versions of Christianity was particularly appealing. 90% of Rastas in Ghana were from Christian backgrounds who embraced the Rasta challenge to those Eurocentric teachings. Beyond that, the people who carried the messages of Rasta, the Jamaican apostles and missionaries and the reggae musicians, made Rasta into a movement rather than just a fad. Jamaican Rastas who traveled the continent extensively, men like Douglas Mack, preached and inspired wherever they went. Though only hundreds of Jamaicans ever resettled in the promised land, and not the thousands that Mack and his compatriots hoped for, those who did and moved out of Ethiopia and into places like Ghana and Nigeria founded Rasta communities and found ready young disciples. Just like the young men living in shanty towns and slums in Jamaica, West African nations struggling to adjust in a post-colonial or neo-colonial world were very receptive to the Rasta message. Just as importantly, the local West African reggae musicians believed what they preached in their music, 
They spoke out against national and local government corruption, founded action groups, and helped launch the movement. For most Jamaican Rastas, the promised land dream never came to fruition. As the dream of total repatriation got further and further from possibility in the Jamaican Rastafari, as the dream of total repatriation got further and further from possibility, the Jamaican Rastafari shifted their theological thinking to better survive the reality of staying in Jamaica. This included accepting God not as a literal king, but as an order of nature to be obeyed. By 1975, the year Haile Selassie died, this was a necessary shift, though many Rastas believe he disappeared or is in hiding, like the hidden imam of Shia Islam. Because children were so important to the movement, it also meant really strict sexual politics. In the Rastafari religion, a woman's only true purpose is to have children. Birth control and abortion were taboo. One of Kitzinger's respondents called birth control, quote, white man's plan to kill off the black race. Sex wasn't supposed to be for pleasure or recreation, but only to beget children. One interviewee told Kitzinger that when having sex, a man was supposed to say, as he inserted himself, I like you, bring forth a child for me. Couples were supposed to strive to have children no matter what economic strain it would put on the family, no matter their poverty, they were to believe, quote, the Lord will provide. Sounds like Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Kitzinger wrote her study of the Jamaican Rastas in 1966, so soon after Douglas Mack uh, returned from his second delegation visit, the hope was dying. Several hundred did immigrate starting in 1968, and at its peak's Shashamane had 1,000 uh, Rastafarian Jamaicans, but the majority did not leave. Kitzinger argued that already in 1966, the Rastas were embracing qualities that were similar to other protest religions, particularly those that accepted extreme poverty as a mystical experience. The religion lives on, of course, all over the Americas, in West Africa, and elsewhere, continuing to battle the downpression of Babylon, finding ways to build self-sustaining communities, and looking for the return of the Messiah once again. The end. I just want to point out really quickly, I don't think you're alone at all in, like, knowing a tiny bit about Rastafarianism, but everybody sort of knows, like, the Bob Marley tiny bit of it, right? Because yep. when I remember you talking to me about planning this, yeah, this lecture and telling me some of the things that you started to find out, and I was like, oh, what? what? <laughs> like, how did I miss that? Right? Do we talk about dreadlocks? Dr yeah, dr dreadlocks is what I wanted to to talk about. The reason that I wanted to talk about dreadlocks and like all of it, all of the, as you say in the in the copy, like the sort of tip of the iceberg bits of yeah. Rastafari that we know are so appropriated mm -hmm. by white by white dudes. Yeah. So by white folks, right? Not just dudes, but dreads are grown out because a it's like a well, first of all, like Doug Mack, Douglas Mack did not have dreads. Mm. Neither did Leonard Howell. Howell. Mm. So there are two sort of two categories of Rastafari men, brethren, mm -hmm. and the dreaded dreadheads or whatever, um, they grow their hair out because they like they like attach symbolism of their power and manhood mm -hmm. again biblical to the hair, and if it's cut like Samson, they lose yeah. their power. Yeah, um, so they like grow it out, and then it covers their faces. And Samson was black. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah again those Old Testament connections are really strong, and 
they yeah. come through and then they're appropriated by white dudes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fascinating that even the I mean, it's really important that the, that the hair has this really deep racial and religious importance. Mm-hmm. And it's so f-ing typical that like everybody knew a guy in high school mm-hmm. who had dreads or whatever and had a, a T-shirt that had. Bob, Bob Marley, Marley on it. Mm-hmm. He probably had another one with Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. Probably couldn't pick Che Guevara out of a lineup, but had him on a t-shirt. Yep. And smoked a shit ton of pot. Yep. And wanted to act like that was some kind of, had some sort of deeper significance. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, when really it was just an excuse to smoke pot. Yes. That's, that is the only level at which I have ever met anyone engaging with Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. White people. White people, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's when I think in recent years, there's been a lot of pushback against white people with dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having kind of done this episode with you, I I mean, I felt, you know, I was right there with them. Like, no, white people shouldn't have dreadlocks. But I feel even more strongly about that now. Yeah. Like, kind of understanding even more of where that comes from. Yeah. It's just not, you can do all sorts of things with your hair, man. Like, don't <laughs> have dreadlocks you definitely don't have to have dreadlocks it's all very interesting it is it's fascinating it's 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 fascinating so thank you for listening to this episode (laughs) i hope you learned something and enjoyed it you can find all the the transcript and the bibliography for this episode at digpodcast.org thanks for listening (laughs) bless you (laughs) (laughs) i tried say bye Oh, bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. 10,000 Jamaicas. And there was still. 10,000 Jamaicas. That life expectancy was very low for the enslaved people forced to work on plantations. I think it's like nine years. I think I said 15. Um, that was very fast. You're like, <laughs> sorry, I'm like lecturing. <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois, an officer. Du Bois. Damn it. Du Bois. <laughs> That's how we say it in Vermont because it's French. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois, slum dwellers whose experiences... Oh, that sounded weird, right? <laughs> Illiterate slum dwellers. Well, they were. That's what I call you. Sorry. Your whispers are too loud. I thought she was sitting, like, watching a show, and I was like, I'm very jealous. Watching a show. You can, soon. Um, can I pause to tell you that my dad, when he was little, had a dog named Sheba, and he talked about Sheba his entire life. Sheba was like his most wonderful, bestest friend. Sheba the dog got Sheba the the dog, but that's why Sheba's name was Sheba. Anyway. They presented him with crafts handmade by Why is she doing a FaceTime call? I don't know. Want me to answer it? Sure. Oh, it just disappeared. Maybe she gave up? Tap to join. Join. And a number four... I'm gonna guess she didn't mean to FaceTime. I think she accidentally hit the.
Okay.